Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Now is the time to bring new ideas to your industry. And T-Mobile for Business has the advanced 5G solutions to make that happen. We're helping rethink patient-doctor interactions with real-time data sharing. We're tracking carbon with 5G sensors to help fight climate change. We're partnering with cities to connect roadways, cars, and drivers to minimize injuries. Disruptive thinking deserves a disruptive partner. So let's get started on what's next for your business. Step up your innovation at T-Mobile.com slash now. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso, and thank you for being here. This week on the podcast is writer-director James Gray. Born and raised in Queens, New York, Gray directed his first film at the age of 23, putting everyone, maybe save for Orson Welles, to shame with his productivity. But that first film, called Little Odessa and released in 1994, was not merely novel because a young man wrote and directed it. It was just good. Right out of the gate, Gray displayed an understanding of craft and narrative. Subsequently, the movie, which starred Tim Roth, Edward Furlong, Vanessa Redgrave, was a minor success. As would come to be the case with Gray's future filmography, critics were divided. Some, like David Rooney in Variety, praised the project as a high-charge, coolly assured directorial bow. Others, like Roger Ebert, felt it plays a little as if Gray puts everything into it that he ever wanted to say. This proved, of course, to be untrue. Gray did have more to say, although it would take six years before he got another opportunity to say it in the yards. Once again, Gray crafted a tightly wound thriller with big-name actors. Joaquin Phoenix, Mark Wahlberg, Charlize Theron, James Caan. The problem is, it didn't land, or at least not as well as Gray would have hoped. As the aughts went on, Gray continued to have problems not only finding an audience, but getting his movies made. Google James Gray, and you'll find countless discussions in which the director outlines his issues with the studio system at large. And, well, Harvey Weinstein. Gray's candor on the matter of artistic marketability is always illuminating, and rare, 
most of his contemporaries don't dare bite from the hand that fed them. But Gray hasn't exactly been fed, at least not properly. As we discuss in the interview, he's ran into a streak of both good and bad luck. Yes, his movies, which are often subtle but potent pictures, do get made, but they haven't exactly been seen. His latest endeavor is, in Gray's words, the most ambitious movie he's made to date. Called The Lost City of Z, it features Charlie Hunman as a British explorer in search of a city inside the Amazon. Here's a clip from the trailer. I am proposing that Amazonia contain a hidden civilization. If we may find a city where one was considered impossible to exist, it may well write a whole new chapter in human history. Are you insisting that these savages, they are equals? Their civilization may well predate our own. We've had a lot of different folks on this show, but I think only a handful are as eloquent as James Gray. Regardless of topic, whether it's the current state of cinema or the struggles he faced on The Immigrant, Gray has an ability to be both completely honest and incredibly detailed. Talking to James is like getting a mini-education on the history of cinema, except the course is taught by someone you want to listen to for hours on end. While this is not a symposium, I do hope you enjoy this hour we had with James last week. We recorded it inside the legendary silent movie theater on Fairfax, which seemed to be a rather fitting setting to talk to James about his films and uh, the history of filmmaking. So, here is James Gray. Where I wanted to start was this quote that I've read in a couple interviews of yours, and you say, it's always a fight in describing your movies. And so I'm, I'm thinking about that in, in context of your career, but also let's just go into the jungle with Lost City of Z. Is, is, does that ethos still fit for this movie? Well, it does probably doubly, but I, I wasn't, when I mentioned that it was always a fight, I, I, I don't know exactly the context in which I said it because I don't read my own interviews mm. really, but uh, ever, but maybe I should, I don't know. I can tell you the context if you want. Yeah, please. That would actually help me. Sure, sure. It was about um, sort of the production process and getting the film uh, not only made, but financed, and then once made and financed, out into the world for people to see it. Well, that's certainly true. It is a fight because, first of all, let me just say, it's a fight for anybody. You know, to actually make a film, to get it done where it's an hour and a half, two hours, or even a minute and a half or two minutes, is a tremendous uh, achievement in a way. It's uh, I know this is a strangely self-congratulatory thought, but um, you know Orson Welles said it. He said that to, to make a movie, any movie, is a great achievement, and to make a great movie, and he would know, to make a great movie is nothing less than a miracle. And I, I, the reason is is that I was just having a conversation this morning with a very good friend of mine about why there were very few truly great American films made from original screenplays. Now, there are tons of great movies, of course, but very few that are made from totally original material. And that's not the case for American theater from the 20th century, for example. Now, why is that? Because there's an apparatus, a technical apparatus, a financial system, 
economic system that you have to make your films within. And then they have to get distribution. And all of that machinery, all of it, serves to get in the way of the process. Now, if I'm a painter, I spend maybe $50 on canvas and another $100 or so on my oil paints or gouache or watercolor or whatever I'm working in, acrylic. For context, you wanted to be a painter as a kid. I did. I wasn't good. I mean, I'm technically excellent. So in other words, if you said to me, (laughs) paint that water bottle, I could do it in a photorealistic fashion. But technical excellence is almost entirely meaningless. But the process is a solitary one. You know, there's you and there's the canvas. There's the brush uh, and your hand. And no one makes judgments. Now, people make judgments when you're finished, but you don't need anyone to weigh in. You don't need a ton of money to make it. You don't need a whole apparatus. You don't need a whole crew to make a painting. So it's not a collaborative medium. The cinema is a collaborative medium, and that can be both beautiful and emboldening, but it can also be uh, terrible. Messy. Messy and awful, and you can have disagreements and all of that. So it's, it's, a, it's a fight because it's not a system set up for what it is. Uh, I'll say it for me specifically. It's not a system set up for what it is I dream of doing, mm-hmm. which is to make films that uh, are personal to me and that I care about very much and that are, in many cases, difficult thematically. So I, 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 don't, think that, uh, I don't think that system is built for that. The system is built for product. The system is built for stuff that is already sort of prefabricated. Mm-hmm. Now, if I were, for example, a director uh, in the studio system even, or today, uh, and I wanted to work within the studios, what would happen is they'd send me the script, and it would be a picture that they would almost always invariably already want to make. And the fight is much less, and especially if you, let's face it, if you make the kind of picture that they, exactly the one that they want, and then then there's much less of a fight. It seems your movies occupy an interesting middle ground when it comes to to the larger conversation about contemporary cinema. You make serious films, with fairly large, well-known actors, but they're not indies, but they're not also positioned very often as Oscar contenders. This seems to be, uh, you know, I kind of think you were born in the wrong era, in my opinion. Um, it's an interesting point. There's, I, there's I, a delayed pause. From well, there. because, I, you know, it's strange. <laughs> I don't, I'm fine and pleased to be talking with you, and I very interested in your analysis, but I really try to block all of that out on a daily basis. I never think about where I sit in the scheme of things, Mm -hmm. because if I did, I would never work again. Uh, You would recognize how difficult some of these things are to actually get made, and then you would be terrified out of doing it or out of trying to do it. Um, Having said all of that, I mean, hearing what you're saying, I've heard it before uh, in a couple of places, I would say that it seems right to me. And it is a major, uh, in candor, it's a major impediment uh, in some ways to their accessibility. Because, you you see, what, what has happened to cinema really since 1979, 1980, that was very much a a turning point uh, in the movies, is sort of there's been a bifurcation, you know, which which you see in the world at large, right? You see people who make 
$25 million a year or more, and then you see people struggling at Walmart to make $7.80. So what does that mean? How does that apply to the movies? Well, it does completely. What has happened is, just as the world's economic system has pushed the top out of sight even further from us, and the rest of us are earning less and less, the same thing has happened to the movies, where you have the studios making fewer and fewer and more branded product, and they're bigger and bigger and bigger, and they have $300 million movies with $100 million in marketing. And then you have the movies that are, well, we'll call the indie movies, and they're made for less and less and less and less and less and less. Now, the type of cinema that entrances me and always has was the one that combined both the spectacle of the studio system and the truth-making of the independent system, we'll call it. Mm -hmm. And that was the type of movie that took over somewhere around 1966, 67, with what they call the New Hollywood, which to me, uh, and I'm only talking about the United States now, of course, in Europe and in Asia, the time frames are different. There were fascinating, amazing movies, for example, coming out of Italy in 1945, um, I believe uh, Visconti made Ossessioni in 1943. So that there was an amazing movement uh, even then. But And the studio system, by the way, created some of the most remarkable movies ever made. I mean, just incredible stuff. Uh, obviously, Alfred Hitchcock worked in that system. John Ford worked in that system it, with, with surprisingly radical results often. Mm-hmm. But the new Hollywood was a combination, I felt, of Europe's commitment to auteurism and thematic depth and an American commitment to, we'll call it, craft and narrative storytelling. And that more or less ended around 1980. Uh, and that's, I think, what you're really referring to with me. And now what you have is, to be honest, I find you have a kind of McDonald'sification of movies. So you'll have the big franchises, which are like you go and you get your Big Mac, Um, And then there's the kind of indie movie which still applies in some ways to the rules. So it's kind of not McDonald's, but it's sort of prêt-à-manger. It's sort of the (laughs) slightly more uh, upper-crust version of fast food, Mm -hmm. which is to say it still delivers kind of pat solutions, sentimentality, but it does it couched in a kind of indie way. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like Arby's. Uh, I don't want to speak poorly of Arby's. The last time I had Arby's was somewhere around 1978. But... The point is... Hold on for one second. Yes. James, how do you remember the last time you had Arby's? Well, I can tell you how I know it, but it's a very specific thing because Arby's closed the same year that the Yankees won the World Series in in 1978. They had beaten the Red Sox and then went on to to beat the Royals and the Dodgers, and Arby's was replaced by Wendy's. That's 1978. There you go. That's how I know. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's pathetic. By the way, I have one of those awful verging on kind of Aspergery memory about mm-hmm. things. Like if you asked me who directed any studio film from the 1980s, I could tell you. You know it. Yeah, it's a very strange I don't think skill. it's pathetic, given the historical context you've provided, which is far more educational. I'm sorry. And, and no, 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 no. Don't, what, what are you apologizing well, for? Well, I, I, you know, you can be, I, I can be very sort of pedantic. and You're not you know, pedantic. Uh, all that, but no, thank you. You, c- you keep undercutting yourself, and I don't well, know Well, no, why. it's not that. I, it's not that. It's that... Uh, it's it's such a to make a film is a very uh, it's to get it made. I've I've talked about this, but it's it's a very narcissistic endeavor. You know, you have to struggle. It's me, 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 me. And then once you actually start getting the film made, you have to forget yourself completely. Are you are you a narcissist? Yeah, 
I, but I don't think, I think everybody has that side to them. I mean, I have been humbled many times. So I think I've become quite aware, not just of my own shortcomings, but I, I, I think I'm, I think I'm much clearer now than I ever have been of what other people may perceive is what I'm about. And and that I know I think, you know, obviously what is the case is as you get older you, you, you start realizing that it's not what people think of you, it's that people really don't think of you. So <laughs> so then you just decide to do what you want. But what I mean is is that I, I've become more aware of my place in the world, I suppose, and in in some sense, both my insignificance, but also how important I am, for example, to my children. So, yes, I'm a narcissist, but I'm also not because there's a level of awareness I have of that. But I think that's the same with everybody. Sort of, there's a recognition of narcissism. Well, do, but don't you think that everybody has a narcissistic side? One hundred percent. Yeah. So, and I think that as a, if you're a movie director, I think any any movie director who says I'm not a narcissist is a liar. Right. How how could you expect a film crew to to spend a year of their lives and a studio or financial people to spend all this money on something that you want to express and not be a little bit of a narcissist? You couldn't. Exactly. Now, the narcissism becomes a problem if it starts to hurt other people. Certainly. But also, it should be noted that you are getting paid in part to be a narcissist. That's true. And that's In my case, not very much, but yes, it's true. Well, sure, I, I can. I, I can't speak about your, you know, how well, much it's funny, you're making. You know, because you know, this conversation I was just having with you about the extremes between rich and poor. Mm-hmm. It, it, the same thing has happened to um, filmmakers. You know, uh, a lot of people I know uh, assume that I'm uh, a movie director, so I'm a very wealthy guy. And uh, the truth is, is that I drive a Chevrolet. I live in an apartment. I live with within my means and i'm not uh not rich by any stretch i assume you're doing fine uh that's a stretch too uh it's you know because i don't i i haven't worked consistently every two years Mm -hmm. and when you work every four or five years it's a struggle let's talk about that because that's the struggle is where we sort of led this or started this conversation and um you're talking about your insignificance and obviously, cosmically, we're all fairly insignificant. I think that's a fair statement. Yes. But um, a lot of people have and will, God willing, continue to rely on you to lead the ship of, of making a movie. What I'm interested in is why do you think it seems to have been a bit more arduous when it comes to making your movies? Or are you just more vocal about it than your contemporaries? No, I think it's been uh, in some ways a little bit harder. There's two reasons for it. One is that I have not delivered commercially uh, with the exception of only one of my films. Uh, that was We on the Night. That was We on the Night. That did deliver commercially. But the other ones have not. And that's one reason. Another reason is I've had actually quite bad luck in terms of the distribution in the United States, how the films have been distributed really from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when the films, uh, people do underestimate how important distribution is uh, and marketing is to the film. Uh, and I, I just think that it's, it, it's a combination of these factors. Now, some of it has been caused by me. Some of it has been caused by the nature of the movies themselves, what the story is. But, to, but in large measure, it's a combination of 
my own lack of mainstreamness, I suppose, uh, um, or my lack of talent, if you will, for some people, for many people, I don't know, uh, a lack of uh, luck and, and timing, really. Now, I'm also, I think, uh, I feel very lucky in most respects because I get to do what it is I want to do, and that's a miracle. Very few people are fortunate enough to do that. And I'm very lucky that I've gotten to make six films, and I mean six movies on film, mm-hmm. that have been theatrically distributed. That is quite rare, and I have a feeling going to become even more rare. So in one sense, I've been a little bit unlucky compared to some of my contemporaries, but in another sense, in a larger sense, I'm very lucky. I think something I wanted to put forth when it comes to the financial success of your movies, and you mentioned earlier about product. You broke it down, and it's not a crass term. It's just it, it is what it is. Of course. I think your movies have had a consistent problem being marketed, and I don't exactly know why. I've just I've looked at this whole week. I've wa- I rewatched a bunch of your movies, and I've seen the posters, and I've watched the trailers just to see. I wanted to get a sense of it, and there seems to be a consistent um, misunderstanding of how to properly put out your movies into the world, and I don't get it. I, I I'm honestly vexed by it. It has to do, like I was talking about, with this kind of uh, bad luck to some degree with distribution in the United States. It really started on my first film. Um, my first film, I finished, I was 23 years old. I was so lucky, and uh, it was a movie called Little Odessa, and um, it was be- being released theatrically by a company called Fine Line. And a man named Ira Deutschman bought the movie. He was a terrific guy. This was 1995 now. 94, it was made. 95 was coming out. And um, Ira was very passionate about the film. Mm. And I think he understood the film, and he was ready to put it out there in theaters, and it was going to get a quite a good critical response. And for context, Ira has backed many movies, and is a He's very, important very passionate. So you got a fairly, um, it, it, fairly good beginning there. Well, he was fired two, two months before the movie came out. Fairly and bad beginning there. Yes, and that set the tone, really, because... When he was fired from running Fine Line, um, the people that began to run it after him did not have a vested interest in the film, did not have the passion for the film, and also did not really have a vested interest in Fine Line, uh, the sort of prestige arm of New Line, and Fine Line went away after a couple more years. So... Um, that sort of that's that sort of set the that sort of set the tempo. Mm-hmm. And then you had a similar experience with the yards. Well, the yards was a, a bit different. Um, that was made at Miramax, and the person who brought that picture in uh, was a man named Paul Webster, who had produced my first film. He was running uh, production at Miramax for Harvey and Bob Weinstein, and he uh, he left his job. He didn't get fired, but I, I think he moved on. He just quit. He went, went back to London. Didn't really like New York. So I was a bit, I don't want to say abandoned there, but, I, you know, in a sense, the person who brought the project in left. Mm-hmm. Uh, on We Own the Night, um, it was finally released wonderfully well by Sony, uh, Columbia Pictures, but even there, the, the distribution was fraught because it was originally bought by Universal, and then they hated the film and basically gave it up, so it didn't have a distributor, and I had to bring it to Cannes and this whole thing. 
Anyway, it's a long story, and I hate to sound like I'm complaining because, like I say, in lar- in the large scheme of things, larger scheme of things, you're an outlier, and you've been fairly I've, lucky. I've been very lucky because I've been able to make these films. They're not compromising movies, if they're good or bad. They're not. They're not cookie cutter, and they're not. They're not. They don't end happily. You know, mm-hmm. almost exclusively, don't end happily. There's two things I want to hit on. One is two lovers, but before we get to that, uh, I wanted to talk about the experience with the immigrant and not because I'm interested in you talking about Harvey Weinstein, but I, I'm more in reading about it, but also thinking about your career. I'm interested in the feeling of this situation because you put your heart and soul into all your projects and the sounds of it to, to unwittingly be part of this guy's business again, to, to have him buy the movie without your consulting or your approval, it seems painful. Well, uh, let me let me just say this. You know, uh, Harvey, in some sense, has uh, has a point, which is that as a businessman, um, the immigrant was uh, a failure. You know, it didn't it didn't make money around the world, and uh, you know, so he he that's and he has a business to run. It's not a charitable institution and and so i think harvey felt and in his mind it makes total sense that the film was bad business so that's that's the nature of the movie business you know that's you have to learn as the director to accept that and it's painful but it is a fact of life and it's a fact of the movie now that aside um there is a larger kind of issue with trying to make films in a particular way which is that with the death of socialism really as a a kind of a alternative alternative economic system as as ethically and in some ways morally bankrupt and non-functioning as socialist dictatorships are they are at least some measure of an alternate view than to the market to the market market economics mm-hmm. and when that went away in 91 it became all about the market right so what are we really struggling with now you know, I talked about what has happened since 1980 to the cinema. But what it, what is the struggle? What is this globalization? People make less money and then the people at the top make more money. What is this all about ultimately? To me, it boils down to one thing and it affects everything that we do and it affects everything that filmmakers do and it affects uh, everything that, um, dare I say, artists and creative people want to do, writers, anybody. And that is this one notion, which is that capitalism, market economics, has not yet figured out a way to monetize the notion of integrity. So if you say, I'm going to stick to my guns, I'm going to do this, there is no financial reward for that. Now, is that good or is that bad? Well, the people who make money inside the current system probably think integrity is for for wimps. And that's fine. They can feel that way. My feeling is that for a period between 1945 and 1980, there was a kind of naivete in capitalism. There was a rival system, communism, socialist dictatorships, really. Mm. Plus an unknown factor, I think. Of course. So you had, for example, an, a relationship between labor and management, which was an uneasy feeling of codependence. And you had the CIA, for example, financing abstract expressionism because the CIA wanted 
to advertise the American boldness. And you had an investment in the studio system in certain directors because they didn't know what would be a success or what wouldn't. That's why you got those movies that you got in the late 60s, right? Because they were making Darling Lily, they were making all these other musicals, and they were bombing, and they didn't know what to do. So Easy Rider comes out, it's a huge hit, and all of a sudden they go, oh, well, wait a minute. Bonnie and Clyde, actually, before Easy Rider. But my point is this. So when you're faced with a situation with uh, the Weinstein Company on The Immigrant, they have a point. They do. It's not a charitable institution. They have to release the film to have it make money. And you're there saying, I want the ending to be what it is, which is this unclear, ambiguous thing. It's not, hopefully, hopefully not, prêt-à-manger as opposed to McDonald's. Hopefully it's its own thing, it's specific, it's unique. Now, having said all of this, of course when the film uh, didn't come out for a while and then later came out and was received quite well, but you know, it, it, it didn't make tons of money and all that, it's a heartbreak. How could it not be? Um, if I gave you any other any other comment on it, I would be lying. Even if I said no comment, I can't say, to your question. I can't say no comment because it implies all kinds of darkness, and you know. But I'm now being completely open with you that I was extremely depressed for a while. But what what I have to also acknowledge here is another mistake I make repeatedly, and something that Joaquin Phoenix is fantastic at, which is. Joaquin focuses exclusively on the process, and he finds great joy in our collaboration, for example, or in other collaborators, you know, with, with Paul, Paul, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. You know, he's worked with Paul twice, and he, he finds great joy in working with people whom he likes and with whom he is uh, simpatico. So that's his success, and my own failure is that I still have a part of me that wants acceptance inside the system and wants to be uh, somewhat successful financially and wants to be respected and loved for what it is I do. And that's not really why you create what you create. It's about the process. It's finding joy in the process. Now, I've gotten much better at it, but there's still a part of me. So when The Immigrant came out in that way, it was, of course, a sadness to me. That's about as complete an answer as I can give to you. Why do you need that? A- approbation? Well, uh, th- there's a... First of all, I have to actually pay my bills, so there is that. But leaving aside the practical implications of a movie that doesn't make any money or get released or whatever... Right, because I don't think you were also speaking about the practicality of it. You were talking more I about... I wasn't. You're quite right. right. I mean, what I was really saying is that there is a part of you that makes these things because you feel the need to be heard. And when your film doesn't come out, you're not being heard. And that is a hard thing to to acknowledge. It's a hard thing to accept. But I've talked about this many times. It, 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 the, the world is littered with examples over the centuries of artists that are way better than I am and way better than I will ever be at getting much worse treatment. You know, in the end, Harvey Weinstein did release The Immigrant. He did. And it it had its shot in the market, and it was supported wonderfully well by several critics of whom to whom I'm greatly in debt. Um, 
and the weight was really lifted from my shoulders when it came out. I was very grateful for that. So I think I, the reason I need it is because I want to make sure that I'm heard. That's part of the reason you want to communicate your ideas to the world. It comes back to the narcissism, narcissism idea. But in some sense, it's not only narcissism. It's, it's fun and interesting to mm-hmm. badmouth people for wanting to be heard and call them idiots or schmucks or whatever because they have big egos. But it's not really only about that. It's that, uh, in a sense, there's a naivete, there's a, uh, a childlike need to communicate something that you hope in some way makes the world a little better, as corny as that sounds. It's when I try to make a film that I care about, it's not only an act of ego, it's also my way of trying to contribute something of value to a world which is, uh, let's face it, more often than not, kind of hostile to such contributions. So you do the best that you can, and you let the chips fall where they may. Um, and I have been bad at that. But that's a different thing than being a creative person. So this is you, you, we're talking now mostly about the business aspect and about the release of a film, and that's very different from artistic success or lack thereof Mm -hmm. or the ability to create something that adheres to what it is you have in mind, which I think I'm getting better at as I get older. Yeah, but the other side of this equation is that um, at the end of all this, when you do make your final film years from now, if you continue abiding by the principles you've been abiding by, you will be able to say to yourself, I did my best. I put my heart into these movies. And I didn't compromise that vision. And there's something there's something That's noble true. about that. I mean, th- well, I, 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 you you would have to apply that word to me. I I, I wouldn't apply it to myself. That's for sure. Of course not. What I would say the only though, words you apply to yourself are pathetic. No, <laughs> I don't un- think I'm. No, I'm not pathetic. I mean, I'm I'm actually like I said. I'm in many ways extremely lucky. Uh, if one were to spend any time looking at my filmography, that is absolutely true. Good or bad, they are totally mine. I only reference that because you've used about three or four adjectives and they've all been negative in describing yourself. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it's time for me to go back to the shrink. But, <laughs> you know, at a certain point you realize that... Um, Has that helped? Yes, it's helped. But it's it's weirdly helped creatively more than than what it is that we're talking about now because what we're talking about now is a is a system a systemic issue there i have uh, filmmaker friends who are also doing works that they care about deeply who are successful financially um and have been able to create uh forgive the vulgarity of this term a brand for themselves in a way that is remarkable i mean a very close friend of mine is wes anderson and he has been fantastic at creating a brand a brand people go see the new wes anderson movie Mm -hmm. and he has not compromised at all and yet been able to do that and that's fantastic does he recognize that he's created a brand i never asked him that question i never said wes have you created a brand you know um sure but in the conversations you guys do have about each other's work if that is part of the conversation it is part of the conversation i have been uh unfairly cruel to some of wes's movies um, and wrong. 
Which ones? Well, um, I don't really know if I should get into it with you, but what I will say, because it's sort of personal exchanges I have with him, but what is interesting to me is how wrong I have been. I was wrong about Pulp Fiction, for example. Mm -hmm. I was wrong about... uh, I was wrong about Magnolia. I've been wrong many times. And usually it has to do with my inability to perceive what an audience might feel um, and also maybe, you know, more petty aspects, you know, a certain jealousy or, you know, creative jealousy, that kind of thing. And that gets in the way. It it clouds your judgment, clouds your perception. So... um, this whole idea that, you know, the person you really listen to, the people you really listen to are, you know, fellow filmmakers, what they think of your work is also kind of nonsense because we're, we are very harsh to each other. Mm-hmm. Not always. Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson, by the way, is a, for example of someone who's incredibly generous. And that's wonderful. I, I'm also generous with him because uh, I respect him very much. Putting a pause on the conversation for a second. Uh, Next week of the podcast is episode 50. In thinking back about the show, it is a minor miracle that I have not gone completely crazy. Uh, I do mean completely crazy. There's definitely at least some modicum of craziness existing in the confines of the show. Uh, But a couple ways I've been able to maintain sanity is one, the people who tirelessly work to make this podcast happen but also the people who have been supporting the show, both uh, on social media or privately in emails or texts and all that. Getting that feedback has been supremely helpful. And uh, in thinking about ways of improving the show and making the show larger and and more expansive at the one-year mark, we're asking people who do listen to the show or have listened to a few episodes to please consider giving us a review on iTunes. I know you've heard this pitch in the past, I'm not going to make a long one again, only to say I wanted to thank a few people who did review the show this past week, including Miguel Ventura 07. He wrote, I really enjoy this podcast. I mean, it's so great that I'm writing a review for it, which I never do. So with that, I highly recommend you listen to this podcast. Look at that review. He never writes reviews of podcasts, and he wrote a review for this podcast. It means means something. Look, I don't know what it means. It means something. Uh, the thing I actually wanted to read the most is that we got a tweet from someone uh, whose name I don't really know because their, their name is not on Twitter, but their handle is O-S-O-B-G-M. And she wrote, When you spoke about hiding in plain sight and being lonely on Talk Easy Pod, it made me shed a few tears on a packed bus that was directed towards Zoe Kazan. Anyway, however you want to support the show, whether it's a review on iTunes, a tweet on Twitter, or, or a Facebook post, or anything on social media, or just sharing it with a friend, it really does help us out and allows us to continue making this show for a second year. All right, that's it. Now, back to James. In terms of monetizing integrity, which has seemed to be, you know, it has been historically a problem or something it sure has hard hard for people to figure out would you say that uh netflix their current model is perhaps the best version of that well my film is 
going to be released by Amazon, and they have a th- large theatrical window, and they're going to make a big push theatrically. And so, I think they're also in that conversation because they come from the Ted Hope, right, indie producing, doing console hunts and movies. You know, it's like yeah. it's in the same. Well, I I love uh, Ted. Um, what I would say is that I I think that that's the future of the movies. Really, uh, I think that anyone. Who tells you otherwise? Um, maybe is smarter than I am and has a different idea of a different vision. But I, you know, I look at where things are going, and I, I said this maybe 15 years ago, and I remember it was greeted with some eye rolls. But uh, you want to hear someone who's no longer saying he's pathetic? I will tell you that I think I was quite prescient, and I said that I thought that what was happening with movies was sort of what happened with opera, that. Opera was a popular medium, uh, hugely successful. You know, when Verdi died, uh, 400,000 people lined the streets for his funeral. And now opera is the thing you dress up in, you know, a jacket and tie for, and you spend $300, and, you know, it's a whole evening, and it's very proper. And It's an uh, event. It's an event. Or, or uh, By the way, in Los Angeles, you also could wear flip-flops. But let's, let's just say usually you <laughs> dress in jacket and tie. But... Um, the movie started out as a popular culture, popular medium. They still are. But what you see is happening is this thing where now the studios are going to make fewer and fewer and bigger and bigger and totally branded content, Beauty and the Beast, Batman, you know, Marvel, Star Wars, these few key brands. And they will spend $300 million on each of those. And audiences will go in droves. And then there'll be room for nothing else. So you'll have that. And the business will evolve in that way. And the people who want to see something a little different, they'll stay at home and they'll watch it on their 60-inch TV, 70-inch TV. Now, that's a sadness because part of what we love about the cinema is the big screen uh, and the communal experience, what it means to see a film with other people, to get out of the house. People people sitting in here. Exactly. And if that goes away... You know, there is a thing where it's like, well, what difference? What do you care of? You know, and people say to me, oh, I saw your movie on my computer. And it's like, eh. And they, well, what do you care? I saw it. I loved it. And it's like, well, no. I mean, it wasn't really designed for your computer. I mean, it was designed for a big screen with a bunch of people watching it and laughing and, you know, or, or crying, God forbid, or that sort of emotional reaction. God forbid. And um, that's going away for films other than about four or five pictures a year from each of these studio, these conglomerates, really. So that's the evolution of the business, and you have to accept it. And the communal experience for the types of pictures we like will be relegated to, you know, the Museum of Modern Art and the LACMA and a few other, you know, the Academy and places that you watch these movies almost like we go to the opera. It's, you know, special, very specialized. Isn't television part of this evolution? It is, but, you know, there's a couple of key problems with TV, and I've talked about this before. The evolution of movies is not accident or happenstance. There's a process that happened, right? First you started with, you know, these, these the zoetropes, the flip book, that sort of thing. And it evolved to a reel or two reels, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Somewhere around 1927, 28, something like that, we settled on, maybe even earlier, we settled on about 70 minutes, 80 minutes. 
And then the range became 70 minutes to like 120. And that settled in somewhere around the early 1930s. So why is that? Why is it that movies didn't become 42 minutes or 279 minutes? Well, upon occasion, they did. Lawrence Arabia's four hours, Gone with the Wind is four hours, The Godfather Part Two, three hours, 20 minutes. But those tend to be, Godfather Two, for example, is a five-act structure movie. If you're dealing dramatically with three acts, something happened where it evolved into that. And many people have tried to blow up the form. None has been successful. Um, that doesn't mean, by the way, we don't keep trying. So that's the way that that evolved. Now you have TV. TV says it's 16 hours, 18 hours. You, It's open-ended. It's a series. It keeps going. Season 7, you know, all this. And what movies did so brilliantly in that time frame was they approximated in some organic, fabulous, maybe Freud would have some comment on this, you know, some kind of beautiful way of replicating the birth-life-death cycle. Mm. There was something compact about it. It was compact enough that we could digest it quickly, but not so compact that it didn't have enough complexity. You know, if you look at the cinema, you need to think about one thing that's very important, I think, which is that, let's say the year is 1927, which I believe is the year that Murnau made Sunrise. When the cinema was invented, really, when narrative cinema was invented, I guess we could say it's Melies or Edwin Porter and Edison, I don't know, 1900, let's say. Within the first 30 to 40 years of the medium, you had an utter explosion of talent and creativity and greatness that is just unparalleled for any other art form. It suggests that the human being had a kind of almost innate need for the movies, for the cinema. Can you think of any other art form like that? Painting? Painting the first 30 years after Lascaux? Were they doing, you know, Guernica? No. So uh, something was different about the movies. Something was more essential about the movies in an immediate way. And given that fact, when we now talk about television, we can't convince ourselves it's the exact same form. It has its own beauties. I have been unbelievably impressed with, for example, Breaking Bad. But it is a different medium. It's different. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like saying, oh, well, Mr. Giacometti, you're, you're a great sculptor, but, you know, what about CG? You know, what about working in computer graphics, you know? And and Giacometti would be like, well, what do you mean? I do these sculptures. I'm a sculptor. <laughs> I, what do you now CG? And they say, well, it's the same thing. It's just you know different kind of art form, but it's the thing. It's not the same thing. It has its own beauties, but it's it's not the same. Does it hurt you when you see your idols, someone like Scorsese, go to that medium? Not at all. First of all, Maestro has kept his foot in both camps really wonderfully well. And he seems to acknowledge this very thing I'm talking about. You know, he's just adapting for a different kind of thing. Um, it doesn't hurt me at all. And I'm always excited to see what he's doing anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's such a great person on so many levels. Perhaps um, a larger conversation, because you directed, uh, I think it was Red Road. That's right, I did. Uh, which I had a slightly painful experience on, but yes, I did. What I'm getting at is, do you think... Th this medium, which is not film, 
but television is squarely a different type of art. Do you think it is taking away from cinema? Because these you, now you have all these filmmakers, the ones that are, you know Barry Jenkins is now going to television. It's like every, no no matter what you do in the movies, the next step is: Do you have a show on HBO? Do you have a show yeah. on Netflix? Is it taking away from the cinema? Yes. Absolutely. Now, is that bad? Unborn movies. I don't know the answer to all of this. My instinct is that it's bad. My instinct is that it's bad. Just because I have such a love. Let me, let me, let me amend that, actually. I think it's bad for me. <laughs> it's bad for what it is I crave or right. want. You know, I was inculcated by all of these films from the late 70s, and they created that love of that experience in me. You know, Raging Bull and Apocalypse Now were very formative movies for me, and so was Jaws in a weird way, even though I was quite young. Um, Spielberg's command of craft is beyond great. I mean, it's into the stratosphere. So... You're talking about a level of craft and commitment to movies as an uh, an audience experience. And do I think that TV is that? No. So why would I not want to resist it? Now, I'm probably going to have to embrace it. It's going to be by necessity. You're going to direct a show on Netflix? Well, no, I don't have anything planned. But, uh, you know, if you want to keep expressing yourself in some way like this and the people do watch them people do watch them in much larger numbers than the cinema now there's a reason that that is i think there's a couple of reasons one of which was that the movie business did its very best to destroy its own audience Mm -hmm. and now they're paying the price but i think it's if you want to communicate to people you have to learn to adapt subsequently how, how do you know anyone watches these things i mean they don't release any numbers there are no figures I mean, you, I You're guess right about you, that. you can have a sort of, uh, you can gauge through internet response and hashtags or, or right. uh, sh- shares or other terms that I don't know, but I don't really know how you gauge. Like, I don't hear anyone walking. I mean, I guess the ultimate test is you're walking around and someone's like, oh, did you watch Stranger Things? Right. What kind of impact it makes on the popular culture? It's an excellent point you raise. What I will say is I assume people do watch because if they didn't, they wouldn't have any money and wouldn't make these things. Businessmen are pretty smart. They do things for a reason. They don't throw money away for no reason. Maybe it's not that... I, I think they do watch, and I agree Netflix has a model where they seemingly have an infinite amount of money. Uh, th- I saw driving over here, they're doing the new Louis C.K. stand-up special. They did Chappelle's last week. They're doing a Barry Jenkins thing. They're doing Finch. I mean, it's, I don't know how they have the money for that, but clearly something's working. I guess what I'm getting at is, uh, I know people are watching it, but there's not the same sensation of when you walk out of a theater, when I walked out of Get Out, which I think is the most recent example of a movie where I walked out of the theater and you have 20 people just like talking, look at this movie. Oh my God, I couldn't believe it. Do you remember that scene at, there is not, that doesn't exist on Netflix. How it, could it? How could it? It can't. It's not a communal it's experience. It's not built into the format. It's not a communal experience. 
And I guess my question is to you, as someone who's such a student of cinema, do people just not want that anymore? It's hard to say. A lot of expectation and desire is created by the market itself. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg conversation. If you look at what changed things, you know, sometimes excellent movies have bad results. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of Jaws and Godfather 2. Um, that was the beginning, in a way, of a problem. Now, both of those films I just mentioned are brilliant and some of my favorite movies, and those directors are crazy great. It's not their fault. But Godfather 2, you know, Francis Coppola was the first person to have a 2 in the number, you know, The Godfather Part 2. Now, he stole it from a very highfalutin source. He stole it from Henry the Henry the Fourth Parts 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. It was a Shakespearean idea he had. And that was, of course, misappropriated into all these sequels, re, you know, branding, you know. It's always good to put yourself right next to Shakespeare. Well, he did it. And you know what? He pulled it off. He pulled it off. So you got to give him his props. He's the greatest. And then you look at Jaws, which is 1975. Is that later. true, by the way? What? Is he the greatest? Who? Francis Coppola? It would be hard to find someone for that period, 1972 to 1979, for that stretch, anyone who matched it. You're talking about The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, and then Apocalypse Now. If you can find me a stretch of movies like that from anyone ever. Now, does that mean Hitchcock didn't make as many great movies? No, he made plenty of great movies, and Vertigo is, in my mind, the greatest film of all time, which is a ridiculous thing to say, but for me. Mm-hmm. Um, Not a controversial opinion, by No, the way. it was. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw down here. I'm going to throw down, brother. <laughs> there we I'm go. I'm going to tell you that when I saw Vertigo in 1985, or whenever the hell it was re-released, 84, I was 16 years old or 15 years old, whichever year it came out, and I remember saying, that's the best movie I ever saw. I don't care. I, and I've said it for years and years and years. <laughs> I've said that movie has the single greatest scene in the history of motion pictures, single greatest scene, single greatest moment in the history of movies. Which is? Uh, Kim Novak comes out of the bathroom. Yeah. That that's the greatest scene in the history of movies right. because that is it's the most complex, moving, involved, psychologically evolved, brilliantly explained, perfectly positioned moment ever. It's, it's just, all about desire. It's just as complicated as life, and then even more so. It's so it's just absolute magnificence. But what I'm saying about um, the Coppola thing is that for that stretch, he was just such so remarkable. The work was so remarkable. Now there are other stretches that are brilliant. I mean, if you look at we're talking about Maestro Scorsese and what he did with Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, King of Comedy. You know, Last Waltz is brilliant. I love. Huge stretches of New York, New York too. Believe it or not, I haven't seen New York, New York in years. But I want to go back and revisit it. But I remember really being a fan. So he had an incredible stretch, you know. And Billy Friedkin, when he made The French Connection, The Exorcist, and Sorcerer, actually are amazing. Um, Robert Altman, all these guys, you know. And then you look at Fellini and his his work. But what I'm getting at 
with Godfather 2 was this sequelization thing. And then Jaws, which was a year later, 1975, a superb movie, brilliantly done, and actually quite subversive. You know, the whole idea that the mayor feels the need mm. to keep that beach open, knowing that there's a predator that's going to kill people, that's incredible. That it's a very it's a very sophisticated movie politically. It's why Fidel Castro loved it, by the way. Jaws. Love Fidel Castro loved Jaws. But it's also I mean, forget about the fact that it's brilliantly done. I'm saying that the the concept of the movie is pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. That the town destroys itself because the mayor will not close that beach. Oh, it's the fourth of July. We gotta get it's crazy. Madness. Um but what Jaws did was in its release pattern, it came out in three hundred theaters, which was a new thing for an A-budget, A-quality movie. Now, back in the day, and you're probably too young to remember this, but they would release their A-budget pictures in, let's say The Godfather, for example, would come out in one theater in New York, one theater in L.A., and it would widen, 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 widen. And then finally, maybe it would play in 200 theaters or something, and it would play for like a year. It would play for a year. So word of mouth was important. Right. And... Um, playability, as they call it, or, or and it became part of the national conversation. Movies were very relevant, pop culture wise. Well, of course, if there if there's a year to watch Absolutely. it, it's you can't That's be the like whole ball game. No one could be like, ah, oh, I didn't see that. It's been there for a year. Exactly. Go see it. Exactly. So if I say to you, I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. What movie is that? Exactly. Can you do that with any movie made in the last 25 years? Any movie. Can you quote Avatar? <laughs> now, Avatar has its own majesty. I'm not sure James Cameron can quote Avatar. But Avatar is, you know, it has a majesty to it. It's visually majestic. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's very blue. But it, but it works in a different way. It doesn't work in this way that I'm talking about where it played for a year and got into the national consciousness and all that stuff. So um, my whole point being that the nature of the release of the film started to change the way that people perceived movies and their role in popular culture and I think made them less significant. If you release a film in 5,000 theaters, an opening weekend is really all you care about. And even if it does make money, it plays for what, a month and a half, Mm -hmm. two months? It doesn't have the time to grow in the national consciousness. It doesn't have the time to live there. And... That is lost. Do you feel like making movies is like an exercise in futility then? No, I don't. I don't because if you can reach one person, you've reached enough. Well, let's talk about that. Two Lovers. Mm -hmm. Is that the best film you've ever made? Best film I've made? Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't think so, no. I don't think so. I think it's... um, I'm... Very honest, I think, about my work. I would say that the first three pictures that I made were in some ways simulacra of other movies and, and I tried to personalize them. Didn't mean I didn't have that effort, but I think that there's some good things about them, but they're not wholly successful. I think Two Lovers was the first fully personal, successful film that I made. But I think the immigrant is more complex. Uh I think the immigrant is more politically sophisticated. I don't mean left or right wing, what I mean is its sense of history, and I also don't mean in period terms. I, I like that it's about a, a woman, her point of view, her position. Um, and then I think Lost City of Z is probably my most sophisticated film. So I would say 
the last three pictures I've made, Two Lovers of the Immigrant and Lost City of Z, are the ones I'm by far most proud of. And any of, if you said my best film was any of those three, I would be happy. Um, but I would say either The Immigrant or Lost City of Z are my best film. So you're getting better. I think I am. Because I think it's a craft. I don't think it's a... You know, I was talking about Jaws just a minute ago. Uh, I don't know if you saw the movie Bridge of Spies, which is a Tom Hanks movie that I Spielberg have. did. I watched the first 25 minutes of that movie in the theater. Uh, I, I like the movie a lot, by the way, but I'm just focusing on the first 25 minutes. I watched the first 25 minutes of Bridge of Spies in awe. There was a level of a... Com- there was a command of the craft mm-hmm. of how to stage those scenes which is crazy. It is so good. And, and it's this kind of, it's a totally filmmaker thing, like a to- filmmaker nerd is watching that movie. And I'm watching how Spielberg has constructed the sequence. And my jaw drops. <laughs> the reason I'm bringing that up is because today you make 15 pictures, you're inc- unbelievably lucky, you have an incredible career. John Ford made 80. So... By movie 20 or 25, he had developed the craft to an awe-inspiring degree. And it's why John Ford is among the f- two or three greatest directors of all time. And you can watch Ford Apache, for example, and it can seem every bit as radical and interesting and bold and revisionist in a great way as any current movie. The craft, the level of craft he was able to develop, it's just astonishing. Now, forget the guy's talent, which was otherworldly, and Spielberg's talent was otherworldly. I'm not talking about talent right now. I'm talking about the ability to develop that craft. Right. And that is absolutely fabulous. And that also, by the way, is because of the economic machinery, something that we have to fight for and is in a little bit of decline. The level of craft, the ability to develop it. It's nobody's fault. It's just that we don't have the time. So I think that my craft is getting better. And hopefully in my 10th or 11th or 12th film, I'll have enough craft. Mm-hmm. Right now, I think the first three pictures, my problem was I didn't have enough craft. Your grandparents came here in 1923? That's right. Is that right? That's right. And thinking about craft and building your career and the movies you've made. This may sound silly, but I, I, I'm curious. Do you think... You've made them proud. It's a very interesting question. I never really thought about that. I would think the answer to that would be no. Even today, my father has a very vague knowledge or understanding, really, of what it is that I do. (laughs) And my grandfather, whom I have a very clear, of whom I have a very clear memory, and my grandmother, and of course my father, who's, who's, I, I still talk to all the time, um, they're not people who focus on artistic endeavors, really. And they're much more practical, very practical, practical-minded practical people. The idea that a work of art, if I use that dirty word, can actually make the world a better place is an abstraction to them. Mm. Now, I think I have seen that happen. I think movies do make the world better. I think art makes the world better. But I don't think that they would have seen it that way. So I think it would be, I would be a mystery, a curiosity. I know we have to go, so I want to ask one last thing to you. You, ha- you said this in an interview from a few years ago. You, Uh-oh. Yeah, it's okay. It's Whenever good. I hear my own words, you know, it's, it's really a it's, problem. It's wonderful words, don't worry. I was 23 years old when I made my first film, and I thought 
I'm going to be the next Kubrick. That was in regards to Little Odessa in right. 94, and you were right. 23. Um, and thinking about this in a sort of granular, big way about your career and where you're going and where you've been, where does that quote fit? Do you think things have worked out the way you thought they would? Well, I, I'm not sure that you with all respect, read the whole quote, which was that I wanted to be the next Kubrick and thought I would be, but then... I know the whole quote. No, I know I the... I believe con- that I was following it up by saying it, that I realized that, you know, I didn't really have the talent because I watched it, the first cut of my film, which was Little Odessa, and it was such a disaster. Mm-hmm. And I was so heartbroken. And you realized you'd never be able to... I, 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 I would say that... Here's what I, I would say this. I would say that I have my frustrations, and I think that I will always think I should work harder and that the work could be better and should be better and needs to be better. But I also don't have a regret in how I conducted the work. In other words, I, I don't feel like I've sold out or done something cheap or mercenary. or I really tried to function with a certain level, dare I use this word, uh, integrity, and I've let the chips fall where they may. Now, it's it's like life. It's two things at once. It's I'm fortunate and incredibly lucky. And if you had told me in film school, I would by the time I was forty five years old, forty six, that I would have made uh, six feature films with famous actors and and you know there were a final cut and all that stuff. I'd be like, well, that's the greatest thing I ever heard. <laughs> and that's true. And what is also true is that we are hostage to, and sometimes beneficiaries of, uh, what is in fashion, and what people are interested in, and or what they're not interested in. And on that side of the scale, I think I probably, I probably let myself down a little more than I would have hoped, because part of being an artist and a creative person is not living in a bubble; it's being connected to what is actually in fashion. Now, it doesn't mean you try to just mercenarily, glibly make some junk that's in fashion. <laughs> it means that you have to be attuned to what is going on in the world. And very consciously, I've shut myself out from that. I don't think the world has anything to teach me in that way. In that way. I think that my sons and my daughter have something to teach me. My wife has something to teach me. Fad and fashion does not. And that's not entirely healthy kind of too late to change that the die is cast as they say (laughs) james uh thank you so much for doing this thank you for having me special thanks this week to jonathan epstein for making this conversation and the good people at cine family for hosting us you can watch james's latest film the lost city of z as it opens in New York and L.A. on April 14th, and then nationwide April 21st. Streaming-wise, The Immigrant is currently on Netflix. You can also rent most of his work on Amazon, including Two Lovers, The Yards, and more. And finally, a big thanks to James for sitting down and opening his heart. People who need people
If you enjoyed today's episode with James, you'll probably enjoy previous conversations with folks like Kelly Reichardt, Wesley Morris, Alan Arkin, and Matt Silversites. If you're not doing so already, you can subscribe to the program on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting app. If you want to drop me a line about anything, please feel free to do so at sam at talkeasypod.com. We're on Twitter and Facebook at TalkEasyPod, as well as our website, www.talkeasypod.com. As always, our music this week is by Jin Sang and Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer. And the show is produced by Nora Knight. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Next week for episode 50 is my mom. Uh, I guess we're doing that. Okay. See you then. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.